podcast with James and Jane. Hey, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you all about the great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out our online seminar program, the workshops we run, as well as our coaching and all the other podcasts we've recorded. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now on to this episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. Exciting times. It is indeed. Uh, right in the middle of our Diversity and Inclusion series, yeah, which I'm it. loving. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Series six, it's pretty it exciting. Might, it might be my favourite series it's yet, fantastic, which is a bit isn't it? controversial. I, I love the sort of um, connections that we get between all the different bits of content we cover and, and the similar messages coming out from the different people we speak to. Yeah, I feel like I feel like you deserve a big round of applause for uh, some, of, some of your... At the time, surprising choices of uh, guests Yeah. when I first looked at the list. And now I think, oh my life, they just all fit really well together. That's really interesting yeah. stuff, isn't it? So who are we speaking to today? So today we are talking to Julian Thompson, who is the Managing Director of Reconnected. And Reconnected uh, specialise in uh, working with care-experienced people in the workplace, going into the workplace, and also uh, with people of lived trauma, yeah. lived childhood trauma. And they do uh, training for organisations to make them trauma aware, um, and stuff like that. Yeah. And he's just, he's a really articulate, interesting guy with a lot to say about how we better bridge the gap between leaving the care system in the UK and moving into the workplace. Yeah. Really interesting and, and quite motivational guy. I think he's got a lot to bring to this space. Um, so we're really pleased to get to speak to him. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Okay, so here we are. We're getting into the content of this week's episode, and we're carrying on with our series on inclusion and diversity. And we're really lucky today to be chatting with Julian Thompson, who's the managing director of Reconnected. They're an organization based out of Dundee in the UK, and, and they support children who've been through traumatic experiences and then help um, change workplaces to, to better enable them to, to support and, and develop um, post-trauma um, young people. Um, and, and today what we're going to be focusing on when we speak to Julian is a sort of a mixture of things. So we'll be looking at the experiences of children leaving the care system. We'll be talking a little bit about that post-traumatic uh, experience set and how to help people develop through that. And to some extent, we'll be crossing over slightly into the world of social mobility a little bit. Um, I guess before we get into it, though, uh, Julian, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, my name is Julian Thompson, and uh, as you correctly said, I am Managing Director of Reconnected. A lot of the time I get asked what qualifies me to uh, to have uh, such a title, um, and uh, for me, my response to that is always that I myself am care experienced. I was in, in and out of foster care, uh, the foster system in Scotland for many years in my early childhood. Um, I am both a um, care experienced person and a survivor of childhood trauma, um, which led to my adoption at the age of seven. And having grown up with that, I've used my own experience of adversity and, and also healing from that adversity, um, which has inspired me to, to support others who may be um, having similar challenges, specifically within the workplace. And 
If we can think about that, that sort of the group of people that you describe there, so sort of care leavers, post-trauma individuals, mm-hmm. um, I know it's it's not really possible to define that group in any specific way or, or to say that their experiences are, are necessarily the same. Mm-hmm. Um, could you share your thoughts of some of the challenges that people from those groups face in, I guess, to some extent, wider society in general? The, the first thing that I would talk about there is the lack of social capital that um, a lot of care experienced young people and obviously uh, survivors of trauma as well. So the, the official definition of, of social capital from the OECD is the networks uh, together with shared norms, values and understandings that facilitate cooperation within or among groups. So the thing about care experience and uh, the, when you look at the reasons that underpin that re- the reasoning for being in care, you start to look at the trauma, the complex attachments or lack of attachments that exist for that young person in, in their life. So when you actually look at the family unit for people who've been care experienced, often that that will, will represent a dysfunctional group. So you mm-hmm. would expect to see poorer social capital because obviously the, the less functional the group, the poorer the social capital and, and social mobi- and subsequent social mobility that would exist within that group. So that would I, I would say that, that social capital is one of the, the predominant challenges facing care experienced young people. And I, I, I would also say that uh, there are two other sort of main challenges. The, the second one is difficulty accessing services. Um, if you have been told or if you have been led to believe that you are not worth being supported um, and that your parents are unable to look after you for whatever reason, that leaves a, it leaves a narrative. And that narrative really is that if my parents can't even look after me and can't support me, why should I bother asking for help? Yeah, that all makes sense. And and the, the piece around narrative is interesting. We've touched on things like narrative identity theory in the past, and, and we, we know some of the power of that. Yeah. Um, if we go back to the social capital event, then in terms of uh, the networks and, and the sort of cultural norms that people leaving care have, are you saying that those feel different? Or how does that manifest in terms of their ability to interact with society? Well, I think a really good way of, of, of answering that question, James, is actually looking at what's going on just now in Dundee. So, um, for sure. example, there is an organisation in Dundee called Breakthrough. What Breakthrough are doing is linking up um, not just care experienced young people, but young people who may be struggling to engage more generally in education. Um, and what they're doing is they're linking care experienced young people up with mentors. And these mentors might be people who have a bit of influence, chief executive of, of organisations. And really what that's to do is to actually improve social capital. So when you actually dig a bit deeper and you under, and you ask, why, why is that happening? Why, why are we having, why are we in a situation where we're being forced to um, mentor people with uh, potentially quite influential people? And it's because people who are from these kinds of backgrounds may not have access to, to those types of networks or the ability to access uh, people of influence. If you are from, a, say, a council state in Dundee, uh, the likelihood of you coming across somebody who would be able and willing to help you to progress um, is is quite limited. That's really interesting. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by this idea of um, social capital and how it plays out with people who have care experience because I think we, we're beginning, we're only really beginning to scratch the surface, I think, as a society about Absolutely. the understanding of social capital and inherited capital and knowledge. And I, I had a really interesting conversation. I was doing a session with some 16 year olds, you know, from a, a, a relatively good state school, parents were relatively well engaged and still 
the lack of knowledge of the norms and the things that I was brought up with, um, having attended a school that was very obsessed with careers. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't know how to, really simple stuff. They didn't know what a CV was. They didn't know how it looked. They didn't mm-hmm. know. And, and, and if you take that and then exacerbate it to a situation where a young person might not have had stable influences, they might not have had role models that are in full-time work, they might not have had the same role models in that full-time work. And you can suddenly start to see how all of that assumed knowledge in someone when they enter the workforce just would be absent or part of it would be absent. And then then you have managers getting frustrated as to why that might be, but they haven't even asked the question (laughs) of, you know, why that might be the case. So uh, you can see that there's there's a real issue with communication yeah, I I tell you, I've I've just shared I, something really touched my heart the other day. I was watching, um, I don't even know what I was watching. I was watching something on the internet, which I probably shouldn't have been. But anyway, there was a, a lady who uh, works in higher education, uh, works with uh, universities, and she specifically is there to transition uh, people with care experience into the universities. And she was taking, she was posting photos of her putting special care packages in their dorm rooms for the freshmen. Because, of course... Really simplistic, right? But no one's going to drive them to to, yeah. to uni. No one's going to pack them a few extras. No one's going to show them how to mm. be ready to make your microwave meals in the place that you might be doing. All of those things that are just assumed that someone will pick up mm-hmm. yeah. just don't happen. And so she was talking all about the, the kind of things that they try and do in the first few weeks to make sure that that transition is as least bad as possible, I think, yeah. as opposed to good was how yeah. she described it. And, and, you know, this kind of reminds me of a conversation we had in one of the other episodes in this series where we talk about micro inequities. And this isn't, mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't exactly the same as micro inequities, but these are, when we think about social capital, the things that, that we have that we aren't even aware that we have that, that create inequities in our experience and our knowledge mm-hmm. with, with those around us. And I think and, that fits and that's why it's so dangerous, right? Because we don't know we've got them. If yeah. we do yeah. have them, we don't know we've got them. So we don't see it as a privileged position yeah. and we don't therefore look for it yeah. where someone doesn't have yeah, those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you say, the managers get frustrated because it never occurs to them yeah. mm-hmm. they have something that someone else doesn't. Yes. And, and not only that, they don't see the lack of knowledge because it's not necessarily knowledge within subject area it's more life knowledge how to behave appropriately or how to how to be in a particular situation like I used to work in the NHS for example and just through my own experience you know there's a certain way to be in that environment and I found that quite challenging because you don't you haven't been brought up in that environment you haven't been brought up with those norms and with those um, with that collective experience um, to fall back on so yeah it's really that kind of social knowledge piece i think yeah is, is some of it. my um one of my relatives for a while worked in uh, demographics and and basically looking at employability in different regions in, in the u.s and mm-hmm. one of the things they found was that when they worked with employers from from certain areas and, and this isn't so much you know care specific but this is in um deprived parts of the u.s so sort of ex coal mining communities and things like that and they looked at what the employers were looking for there and, and the things they were struggling with and a lot of the challenges they had in bringing employment to those areas fitted with some of the things we're talking about so it was um you know it was things like you know how to behave in the office how to turn up for work how to dress for an interview how to engage properly in that sort of social work environment and those were the, the types of things that that um, were a challenge in, in those sort of regional areas of the u.s as well so it sounds like they're up against it the 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 young people that you're uh, particularly mm-hmm. focused on supporting what can be done to try and improve their experience of looking for and finding work so i think 
the the first thing I would say is that the the current situation uh, we see a lack of support pathways and mechanisms and a lack of process. So we often ask, and I I often talk about this. We ask people if they're black. We ask people if they're gay, but we don't ask people if they're care experienced. Really, you know. Um, and and my question really is why why do we need to know all that other information and yet people who are care experienced don't don't really get a look in when it comes to those questions but if we had that information recorded we wouldn't necessarily personalize that information but at least you would have a picture of how many people in your organization were care experienced and therefore you would be able to respond appropriately to that as a as a senior leader also we don't really talk about these things at work we don't really ask about people's care experience and and we really should be and, and the reason I say that we really should yeah. be because arguably, you know, employers have a duty under, under health and safety at work to, to cover that sort of thing. But I think sometimes employers will just do the minimum and sometimes the minimum's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you, you need to go that extra mile and do, do the things and be courageous enough to do and say the things that other people won't. Um, and I would finally add that I think... Um, that I think we need a much more relational approach. And when I say relational, I'm not talking about just asking someone how they are. I'm talking about, you know, having the having the courage to ask the difficult questions, yeah. um, not only of ourselves, but of other people. And asking ourselves, what what is happening with this person? How is this person? Like, if this person's behaving or behaviour isn't necessarily what we would expect it to be, oftentimes, and I've been guilty of it myself, you know, of of just writing that person off as a bad person, as opposed to someone who may be responding to something beyond their control. And therefore, actually seeing beyond the behaviour and looking at the person, and I think as as employees as you know managers and as leaders we we need to really start looking beyond what is actually more it's it's often more convenient to see that than it is to engage with the truth yeah it's um sorry it's i'm not uh, the reason i'm sort of mentally smiling is we we recorded an episode for this series with uh, a lady called emma from an organization called autocon Mm -hmm. and they specialize in placing people with autism uh, as IT consultants. Anyway, yeah. the thing that I really, I, it keeps going around, and we recorded it a little while ago now, but mm-hmm. it still keeps going around in my circle, is why are we so bad as, and I don't mean this as any one person, I mean as a, as a country, as a society, why are we so bad about thinking about people as individuals and assuming that maybe everyone's got something that's a little bit different about them and if we can take the time to learn about it maybe we can make work better for them i think it's because we like to see things in boxes we like to put people in boxes not only i think because it helps us to understand people and it helps Mm -hmm. it helps our terms of reference because if we can put them in a box it means we can deal with it yeah i think you're right and i'm not and I'm, i'm not saying people are bad for doing that I'm just, I think it's human nature in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, it is. And, you know, we always talk, James and I talk quite a lot about how the human brain is basically designed to find patterns. So they're yeah. always, we're always looking for that. What's the same? What's we the same here rule, or there? We want rules, don't we? We want rules yeah. and simplicity and all of that. But, yeah. but it also, it just strikes me that, that 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 little adjustment of trying to consider an employee or a colleague as a true individual yeah. might be life-changing for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you said at the very, very beginning of that little discussion there that um, 
in fact, we don't often ask about care experience in the workplace. And, and in my personal experience, I think I've only ever met one person that I know of who had care experience that I've worked with. I worked with someone for five years before I knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had no idea. And I, I look back and I wonder, should I have asked or should I have yeah. made it easier for them to disclose or did they want? And I don't know. I still don't know. Yeah, so I guess that, that would be a really interesting question for you is what if someone's listening and they're thinking, I think that I would like our workplace to be more open and more yeah. more able for people to talk about it if they wanted to. What what can they do to, to make make people feel more comfortable if they wish to talk about it? Yeah. I think the the main the answer to that question and, and quite the broad answer to that question is that I think um, organizations um have a duty, I would say. Um, not just a legal one, but a moral one, uh, to become trauma-informed. And what yeah. by that, I mean investing in quality training and making sure that everybody knows that trauma is everyone's business and that actually this 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 approach um, benefits everybody um, and, it, and not just care-experienced people. So actually, actually being able to see the benefits of a trauma, using a trauma-informed approach in the way that we work. So the principles of trauma-informed practice, for example, talk about empowerment, safety, choice, collaboration. And to me, all these things just seem so normal. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we, of course, we should be giving employees choice about the work that they're doing. Of course, we should be fostering a sense of safety for all the people that we work with. Of course, we should be empowering the people that we work with to suggest and I think, unfortunately, sometimes um, self-serving ideologies can often get in the way of of um, doing that. But I think what trauma-informed practice does is is it actually brings out our best selves, and it says, okay, this isn't necessarily always about me, and actually, I need to be part of my responsibility as an employee is actually to uh, have an awareness of the issues that might be affecting other people's lives because it's really you know work you are relating to people every single day five days a week so it makes sense that you need to work in a way that is fostering a sense of safety for people um it's really about how we treat people you know, let, let's be honest, it's about being nice to people and understand and looking at people as individuals and saying, okay, you have these issues and, and be getting creative about how we respond to these issues as well, instead of, um, and I'll, I'll share a story with you, I hope that that, that helps. So when I was uh, working for an employer and, and I was uh, responding to trauma when my biological mother had passed away, Mm-hmm. I was not a very well bunny and um, my employer at the time were more interested in the process lying behind that so they were more interested in was I the responsibility of occupational health or my yeah. employer and, and how would that look and there was a lot of politics involved and I was going wait a minute I need support <laughs> you know yeah. so it was about let's let's let you know that I believe, was just a distraction because nobody actually knew how to handle what was going on with me. Had that organisation been more trauma-informed, they would have known that um, what approach to take and they would have known how to better respond to that and also being able to make, take a bit more of a dynamic, action-orientated approach. Yeah. So on that, I, so one of the things that's been somewhat successful, I'm, always, I'm never going to say totally successful, in other, in other groupings, Mm-hmm. So, for example, within the LGBT community, mm-hmm. is communities of interest. So, where bigger organisations encourage people with similar experiences to get together 
uh, within work time, share their experiences and think about how they can better educate their colleagues who maybe don't have those experiences mm-hmm. in a in a kind of peer-to-peer way rather than it coming from management, but management supporting that. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've ever come across with care experience people? Is that something that happens or it, it, would that not be useful or... Is it just not something that you see organisations trying? And I think what you've touched on there is uh, the co-production of knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and how do we co-produce knowledge. And um, a lot of the time, what's actually happening is organisations are actually harvesting stories from people who've got care experience for specific purposes, which often feels quite exploitative. Okay. and and doing it to tick a box as opposed to uh, okay, as yeah. opposed to a genuine um, interest in that okay. person. So look here, we 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 are inclusive, and this is an example of how we're inclusive. Look, see, we have these these staff that are all diverse and different. Yes, but not actually supporting them. Yes, so it looks good, but it's quite uh, tokenistic. But I think your approach actually just a slight shift and actually a much more collective approach to doing that actually makes makes much more sense to me actually and, and actually getting organizations together to do that and creating a bit more buzz around that sounds good well yeah it's interesting actually you say i hadn't even thought of that but there's one particular group that in my in the sector i used to work in it's full of small organizations and so they didn't really like quite often they only had mm-hmm. one lgbt yeah, person because yeah. there's only mm-hmm. eight staff um but what they did was they did it for the whole sector yeah. and they just they literally put up a they sent an email around to all the organisations that kind of where it was non-profit part, part of the non-profit sector and they just emailed around and said, hey, do you want to meet for a cup of mm-hmm. coffee and talk? And from that has spawned a lot of um, really quite almost campaign style work from that group rather than from the managers mm-hmm. and the HR. And they've been able to c- keep control of it a little bit, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you're going to share your personal life experiences that have been in somewhat way... Um, are private or challenging or have, uh, you know, in the worst case scenarios like you talk about, how, you know, our lived mm-hmm. trauma, then then you need to feel in control of that of information. Course. And you need to be, you, you, you not only have the right to control that information, but you also have the right to decide who you share that information with, how you share that information and when you share that information. And you need to feel safe in, in doing so. So that would be, would that be something you would like to see some of the bigger organisations take a lead on and really giving, giving autonomy to their employees where they've got care experience or live trauma experience to be able to come together and give them a little bit of space and a little bit of money to think about how they can best uh, share their own personal experience with each other yeah. with a view to hopefully Absolutely. encouraging So if a big organisation, for example, bring things to budget that could, say, create a podcast series about sharing experiences in a safe, controlled manner, you know, that's giving choice, collaboration, you know, uh, it's it's basically following the principles of trauma-informed practice. And it's about, but, but to do that, we need to be relinquishing power. And organisations don't like yep. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, that well, uh, that I think that sounds familiar. Um, I think there'll be a lot of our listeners. I know that we we have quite a lot of listeners from HR, uh, from human resources yeah. and personnel, and um, they I I I meet a number of them at conferences and stuff, and they're wrestling constantly with this dynamic of they want to do the best by mm-hmm. the people. They also need to serve the organisation, and how do they meet the balance mm-hmm. in the middle such that everyone's happy and they're still getting to do the things they really care about, like better inclusive work yeah and i think it's tough 
right? But you have to, like you say, there's a moral imperative. You have to, you have to keep searching into you for that moral imperative yes. and keep pushing. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of things that have come up in the last couple of minutes that, that I like, um, that, that again, remind me of other things. You spoke fairly early on as a, uh, in relation to kind of a legal duty versus the moral duties that people have. And, and that's, that's a theme that's come up actually quite a lot in the conversations we've had in relation to inclusion and diversity at the minute. And it, it's um, pretty much everyone we've spoken to has, has used similar language to say that either there's an ethical reason for inclusion or there's a moral reason or there's a sort of social duty. And, and it's more than a business case that, that there actually are, um, you know, bigger reasons to do this, which I think is, is interesting. Um, and and another thing that's come up a few times that, that you touched on here is, is the kind of a relationship between process and people and, and how sometimes... You know, sometimes process gets in the way of really doing what's best for people. And it's that, you know, scalability of process. It's it's all about the, the, the duty to the organization. See, it's, automation. it's really sorry. I'm just going to I'm really interested in this whole idea of process getting in the way because I think <laughs> it can. Yep. But I also think the right process people can cling on to when they don't know what to do. So if you can give people really good training and give them a, a sort of mental or cognitive process to address yeah, yeah. a conversation, then they will when they don't know what to do, they'll cling to that right mm, process. Yeah. And they'll actually use it as a way to navigate through a situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. The problem, I think, comes that the process is a slapdash written in 20 minutes, quite often copied but and pasted. Often, often, a lot of sorry, processes. sorry, I would like you to finish, James. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You can. no, no, no quite ahead. often that process is actually um, written to as a, as a knee-jerk reaction to try and save money in some way. Or because something yeah. bad's happened, right? Yeah, yeah. So something something's happened and they do want to fix it, but they've just gone, yeah. oh, panic, yeah, let's yeah. just yes. do something. And actually it's not considered, there's not been any full consideration as to the impact of what that might be. Yeah, and, and, and my view where I was going to go as well is that a lot of the problems we have with processes is that they become inflexible and, and mandatory. And obsolete yes. really yeah. fast because we, we're learning in this sort of stuff, particularly in this whole inclusion, diversity, equality field yeah we're learning so much so fast that i mean i can think of a policy i wrote two years ago that i dearly hope has been ripped up <laughs> because it's it's no longer the right yeah, way yeah, to do yeah, things yeah, yeah. but and, I mean, and i think lord um, knows if anyone's ripped it up and i i think you know when you were speaking about your experience when your um natural your your birth mother passed away and, and your experiences at work and and i can imagine the people in the organization trying to follow mm -hmm. processes and and not having flexibility to to bring their own initiative mm -hmm. or control situation oh and, you can just see it right you yeah. can see the person sitting like, there just flicking through the, book, yeah, the handbook I have to what do, do this do? thing do and, do? and I don't have leeway and, and actually their approach to that was to performance management rather than to actually people management yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 I, I have to say um I, I have seen yes. that before yeah um, that well. where someone's been experiencing challenges and they their, their approach has been to performance but not actually I've been very fortunate not in any of the organizations I've worked in but where I saw it I, I just remember, do you know, do you know what was astonishing about that? Mm -hmm. It was affecting yeah. two people in theory, the person performance managing and the person experiencing, but it yeah. didn't, it affected the whole organization because everyone yeah. knew, everyone was watching this organization in this heartless mm -hmm. manner go, they're going, what are you doing? This yes. is one of us. Yeah. And suddenly you, 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 instead of behaving like a, um, some kind of parental or adult supportive force, you're behaving like a, yes. a punisher. It yeah. was, it was bizarre. And it and it really it damaged yeah. morale in three or fourteen. But also, what it says is that it also sends a clear message of it is not right for you to not be okay. It so really does. yeah, I who that whole I, 
the 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 recent yeah. hashtag and catchphrase that or oh, it's not catchphrase of it's okay yes. not to be okay yeah. um i don't think i'd realized how pervasive we didn't believe yes. that as a society yeah. until someone said it out loud and i went oh is it <laughs> <laughs> and and it in myself and you know i was sitting there going is it am i is it okay it's not really is it and you have that whole realization that yeah that's literally how our society is constructed yeah as long as i'm all right you're all right as long as you're all right i'm all right because again it's convenient yeah yeah and it's inconvenient when you have to you know when you're being stretched and someone can't just do their job yeah but that's not that's not you know like you said it's Mm -hmm. a moral imperative it's something bigger at play Mm mm-hmm Okay, so we've talked a little bit there about some of the, the broader challenges. Um, if if we think through maybe the the cycle that that employees go through, or, or you know, care experience people go through in work, is is there anything from the sort of employment cycle that's relevant in this space for organisations? So, is there anything you can do about your, I don't know, your um, attraction campaign, your recruitment campaign to to make it more attractive to care experience people? Is there anything about your onboarding or interview process that makes it better? Is there anything like that that organizations can do to be more um, welcoming at an early stage? To Absolutely. And this is something I've been having many conversations around quite recently about um, a lot of organizations are taking a much more uh, targeted approach to recruiting care experienced young people, specifically at the moment. Um, so the civil service, for mm-hmm. example, being, being an example of um, an organisation that is taking the initiative to employ uh, specific roles for care experienced people. However, it's almost as if people have copied and pasted the job description and then put care experience role at the top. Uh, and not actually giving due thought to how, how actually even that recruitment process needs to be really considered. Um, I, one of my main yeah. hobbies and favourite hobbies to do at the moment is to actually look at these jobs description, look at these roles and identify areas where they are saying we will support you. Right. They don't. <laughs> at the moment, they don't. Right. They will, yeah. and actually, <laughs> quite counterintuitively, actually, they say one of the expectations of the person will be that they'll know when to ask for support. So they will be ask for support when required. We've all seen that in a job description. Yes. And when I saw that, I just slapped my head and went, but this is exactly what curious being young people struggle with. <laughs> so clearly the person who wrote this doesn't understand that. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We had um, we had a conversation just a couple of days ago about marginal, uh, sort of marginalized religious and ethnic groups in, in society yes. and, and their inability to ask for help as well, because yes. this just happens everywhere. It's not, you know, yes. this is a... This is a psychological aspect of uh, humanity, isn't it? Yes. And having actually challenged that with certain uh, leaders in the sector, it's become quite clear that, again, this is just another tick box exercise. But actually, when you look at the reality of what is going to go on here, you are going to be asking people who are traumatised to be going into a, back into a situation where they are at risk of being re-traumatised because the, 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 the right support ha- mechanisms haven't been put in place. So, so do you think organisations can do better in that space? What what could people do to create a better sort of recruitment journey and onboarding journey? What what do you think an approach could be? So, I think that the person who's doing the interview needs to be trained to do that interview appropriately mm-hmm. and levelling the playing field for care experienced people. So, basically saying that actually, so so for example, similar to what we do with people with disabilities, we say if you have a disability, you're guaranteed an interview. So it's about making the HR process as much more um, 
pointing more in the direction of favouring care experience to young people as opposed to calling them out as care experience people. It's about um, a nod in the right direction to say, yes, we hear you, we, we understand and we are going to support you. It doesn't need to be uh, a big song and dance, but I think we will give you specific support in relation to your care experience and the challenges you might face at work and also what that support might be. So that might be specific counselling with regards to being care experience or the offer there, because it's about the, it's about the gesture rather than the, the, the outcome yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Again, we've had some interesting conversations in the space. Well, you know, speaking to um, people in the neurodiversity space, a lot of their recruitment practices now seem to not include interviews at all. So there's been a real shift away from that interview process, which again, uh, I think depends on social capital and social norms and, and ability to operate in, in you know fairly artificially constructed environments, which is interesting. And more broadly, when we look at recruitment, a lot of the things that people do around the interview process or the assessment process seem to seem to be habituated, but don't have particularly good um, indications or outcomes. So, so you know, a lot of the practices that people use in interviewing aren't good indicators of future success, um, as it is. So, I, I think there's probably some some stuff in there as well. The, the interview process can often be seen as a you are coming to us and we're going to give you a job. There's a power dynamic there. Yeah. And actually, what that does is it disempowers the person who's being interviewed because it says to them, okay, someone um, someone else has the right to choose my future. Someone else has the right to make decisions about me um, rather than with me. And it, and it also says that that person is not committed to them because I think people who've been experienced or people who've experienced trauma, they, they haven't had much commitment by yeah. people. Yeah, and I think I think the whole world could benefit from interviews, job interviews, moving away from that power dynamic and more towards. Mm. And I know it's hard. I get it. You know, there mm. are more there are more people than there are jobs, but moving away and treating it much more as a, and I'm going to try and use my words really carefully, but um, more like a matchmaking service where mm-hmm. you're trying to find the fit between the person and the organisation. And you're trying to find out, are you right for me? Am I right for you? And let's, you know, and I understand you're seeing eight other people to find the fit, but let's see if this fit could work for me at least so that I'm, 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 I might not be equal in the, in the conversation, but I am at least have some sense of power that during the conversation, I am actually saying to you, yes, this fits for me, or I can see how this might fit for me. Um, Whereas it never feels like that. I think, you know, everything from the way we structure interviews that says, you get to ask questions at the end after I'm done with them. You know, I've done mm-hmm. my questions. Do you have any for me? Yeah. And it's that power dynamic. It's just that it's not an honest conversation between two two agents. No, no. However, what I will say is that I've been in interviews that have felt more conversational. And I think that's quite a good first step. Yeah. All right. Okay. <clears throat> cool. So um, I guess we've talked a little bit there about the getting into work process and that recruitment piece. What about some of the challenges care experienced or, or trauma experienced individuals face when they're in work and, and what can organizations do to to be aware of the challenges they faced and, and maybe change to be more inclusive and supportive of them in those environments so i think the first thing to understand is that um, if you've experienced uh, any adversity in childhood you know the, the one thing we have to understand about work is that it requires showing up every day and it requires a commitment yeah and 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 to me that just says well actually who showed up for us you know, who showed up for us and who committed themselves to us when we were growing up. And actually, we become what we learn. So, 
care experience people specifically struggle to stay in work because the the inconsistency in their lives has has you know they have learned that um, people just come and go so really I think organizations need to again it comes back to that word commitment it, it's about um, really offering the person something transformational um, to say this is what we can offer you just now and this is where like and, and working with the person to outline a bit of a roadmap about their career and 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 having those difficult conversations that that job might not last forever and honoring that and, and saying well actually you know if this leads you on to better things that's okay because I think organizations want yes people and they want people that they can grow and nurture and, and that's fine but it doesn't consider the fact that other people have choice about what they want to do and other opportunities might come along and really having a conversation to say that that's okay and supporting that journey and I know that sounds quite controversial but again there's more people than there are jobs so that job you know will easily be filled again so it's about supporting that person Mm -hmm. as a person rather than as just an employee yeah and just just question for me so I we we talked a little bit in a couple of episodes in this series about role models. Yeah. Yes. And I just, because you're coming at it from a slightly different place because you have lived experience in the area that you work in. Do you find, is that is that like pressure, is that pressure for you as a successful working person also with lived care experience that, that you, you, what do you want to be a role model? Do you think that's healthy or do you find that like quite, is that a pressure in some ways? I think, there's a pressure to some extent for me to be doing this to help other people and I suppose the one thing that I have and I suppose it's actually quite topical and relevant for me just now is this idea that somehow it's not okay to just do something for me if that makes Mm -hmm. sense so there's there's a careful balance to be had between oftentimes organizations want to use people's stories again you know to to tick their boxes but actually asking the question is this in the interest of that person and will that help that person to reach their goals yeah and their aspirations for what they want in their life because it's almost like you need to be seen to be to be selfless in some way and and i you know i think there is a place for that absolutely but not all of the time and that it can be it can be draining to try and be living your life thinking that you need to spend your life helping other people but I yeah. suppose that's all you've ever known in some way because and being... I guess that's why I'm asking that particular yes. bit about it's all you've it's all you've known in the sense that we had a conversation in elsewhere in the series about mm. someone saying that they were they were going to stay away from their particular when we were talking this was talking mm. about faith-based and it, you know they were going to stay away from that and then ultimately they felt this is ridiculous I've got the skills I've got the ability and I've got yeah, the voice I can do so. this and I've got the lived experience but I also wonder how fair that is on us from us as a society to look to you as an as someone with lived experience and say well come on now you're doing a great job you should be able to speak about it and and how yeah. hard it must be for you to pull away from that and go no this is for me and the, the best thing I can do is make the right choices for me like I want other people to well I, I think I love talking about this stuff and mm-hmm. and I love 
educating, even when I was on holiday, I, I was educating people on attachment. And so there was a couple that I got speaking to and they were having a problem with their grandson, but the grandson's um, mother was an alcoholic and, and quite an inconsistent factor in his life. And I just knew straight away that there was attachment issues. I also had the answers. I was like, you know, like not the answers, sorry, but I was able to say, well, actually, if you take this approach and, and actually... Um, you know, honour the fact that this person might be missing their mother and saying, you know, oh, I know you miss her and stuff. So, you know, for me, it, it, the pressure is a lot of on myself, but it's okay. because this knowledge is so valuable to people and so, yeah. um, so you know, and we've I've known this stuff. I would say that care experience people and people have known this stuff for a very long time. I would say for, the, for about maybe five, six, seven years at least, I've had an awareness of some of these issues. Whereas academically, we're just coming to start to understand it a little bit more. So there's that disconnect between academia and what we've already known for a while. So the pressure is almost twofold because actually we're. I almost feel like I'm correcting people sometimes as well because actually that's maybe not right what they're saying or you know so and 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 sometimes there is a pressure to actually not say anything because sometimes people have their own agendas of course yeah yeah. and that can be quite a challenge because you're you see something happening and you're like oh no (laughs) and you're but but that's but it's happening for a particular reason i'll give you an example the there was um and it's now been removed but up until uh, this year actually the um, scottish government had said that if you were care experienced you would be entitled to a, a bursary to attend university as opposed to a loan and that you could get that up to the age of 26 which made no sense to me whatsoever because I was like, what's the magic number of 26? You know, what, why is suddenly, why I, at the age of 26 are you no longer entitled to this? And actually through a lot of campaigning, um, and I campaigned as well to my, I um, spoke to the Deputy First Minister um, through my MSP about that. And uh, I think Who Care Scotland campaigned quite a lot for that as well. And the um, First Minister, had, in her, when she announced her programme for government, she actually removed that um, the, the age requirement there. Um, but it's, and, you know, those, those pressures of, I had to go and speak to my MSP. I had to have contact with John Swinney, you know, about these things. And I made the effort to do that. But it's only because of my experience that that, that I was able to do that because I felt the emotional impact of that. Yeah, Yeah. and also that they listened, right? Absolutely. Like, that is, um, you know, uh, something that I am incredibly proud of myself for, for the fact that I had the initiative to to go and do that. But it's it's, sometimes the pressure comes from knowing which battles to to fight. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for sharing that. It's just, I think it's a really interesting... If, if we have listeners, particularly in the HR space or in leadership mm-hmm. positions who are going to approach yeah. this, I, I, I think it's important they understand the pressure that might put on their employees yeah. as well. And it's about yeah. asking the right questions, I think. Yeah. And, and, and back to one of your earlier points, I kind of think it's partly about um, intention as well. You know, I mean, if you do it to tick a box or to look and, you know, to appear in a certain way, that leads to a set of outcomes. But if your intention is to help individuals and to help a community and, and to, to make things better, then I think that can lead to different 
outcomes as well. So a very Buddhist outlook, James, there. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, probably a bit of a theme, really. <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I, and I think, uh, you know, you're spot on. I think that our intentions breed, you know, the outcomes. And it's about being reflective. Um, yeah. I'll give you an example um, of yeah. where this hasn't gone so well. I was at a conference recently and I was sitting at a table with uh, social workers. Yeah. And there was a discussion ongoing about uh, reflective practice and about how would we know that we need to change. And these social workers in particular said, that, well, how do we know that we need to change unless we speak to our manager and have supervision? And I was absolutely astounded because I thought to myself, well, if I've made a mistake or if I've got something wrong, I hope that I have the personal capacity to reflect on that and be able to say, yeah, well, I, I maybe, yeah, I messed up. Yeah, I could do better next time. And yeah. these are people who have the privilege, and I don't use that word lightly, privilege of being responsible for our children and young people yeah. who failed to understand that they had a duty and an obligation to reflect on their own practice and to improve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or potentially, you know, to go back to your trauma, trauma-informed practice approach, maybe they don't feel empowered to yeah. assess themselves because of a structure they're in, potentially. I think that there is a systemic structural issue within social work, and, and I'm looking forward to um, the independent care. The independent care review will, will report back hopefully in March, yeah. and we will see some uh, a, quite a transformation, I think. And I don't use yeah. I use the word transformation to mean real transformation. I don't mean you know tokenistic transformation yeah. in the way that yeah. that, that care uh, and uh, to our children and young people is delivered, because I think that is a whole other can of worms uh, yeah. in terms of the structural and, and systemic and social barriers that that um, social work are under. And I mean, social workers, you get some really good ones and you get some really bad ones. But I think collectively, you know, the system in which they operate in is so um, messy. Uh, yeah, it's very different. And not necessarily, like, um, is it Jane was talking about um, the, you know, the policy that she wrote a couple of years ago that she hopes was wrapped up? <laughs> yes. And I think there are probably policies within social work that were written 10 years ago that probably need to be ripped up. (laughs) But they're so busy, they're so busy caseload managing that they haven't got a chance. No one's got a chance for taking a helicopter view, right? Yeah, absolutely. Systemic, absolutely systemic. As we see with quite a lot of the public sector services at the moment, but without question, I think the numbers stack up. The amount of money taken away from social care has been insane. Yeah. But then there's an aversion within social care to to find other ways of funding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that is diversify. a whole... That you're absolutely right. And that is a whole other political, ideological, complex thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's, another podcast. That's another another day. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, for now, let's jump on then. <clears throat> so we, we've talked a little bit about what social capital is, what are some of the challenges that care leavers face, uh, what are some of the challenges that post-trauma individuals face, um, and looked at some of the specific challenges around, you know, getting into work, staying in work, and, and you know, sort of being in that working environment. Um, could we jump on now and talk a little bit about what some of the things that organizations can do to become better and more inclusive places to support care-experienced individuals? Have you got thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that um, one of the one of the, the the first things that they that they can do is to aim aim to improve social capital. So actually taking the 
you know, taking a very different approach to how people are managed, for example. So instead of having a top-down approach, have a more um, circular approach to the way that, that teams work. So um, I think um, often management can equal power and people who get experienced often don't respond well to authority and power. But actually managers coming down to that level of um, I'm an equal to you. And so about changing changing the way that we manage staff, I think, is, is a way yeah. that we can respond to that and taking a much more considered approach approach to that. I also think, it, and I come back to it again, investing in the right training, not just in training, um, but investing in quality training. I think a lot of third sector organisations yeah. can often, um, because of stretch budgets and things, look to get training that isn't necessarily the best. It's about... How do we? I think. I think again, it's about taking personal responsibility for how we treat other people, um, and and again, you know, looking at processes and and so, for example, asking that question right at the beginning: Are you kid experienced, and if so, how can we help you? Because actually, what that could have the potential to do, and it does so at universities, and I don't see why it couldn't be done in in employment. And there's a bit of a yeah, higher education yeah. have taken a big shift, haven't they? Big shift. Yeah, there's a bit. There's an HR aversion to this for some reason. I'm not quite sure. I've spoken to an HR manager quite recently about this, and there's a bit of an aversion to it from the sound fit because they don't know what the legal position yeah. is if they can ask, and if so, like because they need to justify what they do with that information. Um, but about asking the, the question, have you experienced care or, and, you know, there's a big confusion about what that means, as in, have you been in care or are you a carer or, you know, what, why would we be asking that question and if so, how do we use it? Um, but if you look at, 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 if we ask that question and what the universities have done, that opens up a support mechanism. If you, like, if you tick the box in UCAS and say that you've been care experienced, that automatically flags up on the system and you will be automatically entitled to a better opportunity yeah. to get in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total and sense. If, and if you think about the opportunities that changing a little question in the recruitment process could open up a whole pathway of support that would that would allow someone to, to go through the workplace and be treated equally. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's really interesting that you say that and talking about some of the some of the ways that organisations could be better. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the work you do? Absolutely. So a lot of I do some training, which is that trauma informed training I was talking about, mm-hmm. and I very much take a no nonsense approach to that. And right from the get go, we talk about childhood childhood sexual abuse. That's really um, it's quite a sad story that I use, um, but. Before I do all that, I actually build trauma-informed principles into what I do. So we'll do a grounding exercise, make sure people feel safe, grounded, um, and then talk about that. So I actually, through my training, it's actually a trauma-informed approach to training as well as delivering a trauma-informed approach <laughs> in the training, if that makes sense, teaching yeah. people how to do that, but also actually showing them. So not only do we walk the walk, we talk the talk. Not and only do we talk the talk, we walk the walk as well. <laughs> and what, what kind of organisations and people do you do it with? What is it? Is it like managers or is it HR staff or is it everybody? So we worked with Dundee and Angus Chamber of Commerce uh, recently. We worked with both their senior leader, their chief exec, and also their staff. So 
um, for me, I take a two a two mm-hmm. stage approach because I think that the approach you take with staff has to be different from the approach you take with senior leaders because actually the reasons that senior leaders will want you to come into the organisation might be slightly different to what they so their expectations will be different from the expectations of their staff and it's about carefully managing those. So, for example, yeah. when I spoke to the chief exec in Dundee Angus Chamber of Commerce, her requirements. Were able to be considered when I delivered that training, and actually the the information that was captured during that training it was also a bit of an employee engagement session. So it was really taking that bit about um, feeling empowered and safe. So it gave an opportunity for people within the work to say what they wanted from work as well. So really building trauma informed approach into employee engagement. Really, it's kind of a bit messy because I think I'm trying to build a very new model of, of a way of doing things. So I'm trying to, to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's so interesting though, because we're going through recording this series and there's, whilst every story is completely different and unique, there are a couple of themes that come up again and again. And one of them is when we do this for some of us, it benefits yeah. all of us. And this just seems to come up time and again when we we find ways to make our work environment better for those of us that might have slightly different needs or, or might benefit from something different. Everybody benefits from that adaption, that flexibility, that that ability to think Absolutely. about people as individuals. And it's amazing, it's amazing how many amazing, workplaces don't have flexible working policies. Or they do, but they're not very flexible, which is my favourite. <laughs> yes. I like it when they've got a flexible working policy. And the flexible working policy is you can ask for flexible working. Yes. And we can say that. That's my favorite. I always look at that and think, I don't understand. Of course I can ask for flexible working. Anyway, uh, that's my favorite. I think people people often say that operationally it's not often like sometimes you need to be in the office or mm. you know you need to be and you know but i'm like we live in such a world where technology is so good these days we don't actually need to be in an office even if you are the admin assistant you can still do that from home yeah it is it's certainly um and whilst we do have listeners in sort of retail and manufacturing so for them it is a bit different but yeah, but course. you are right. There is there is a reticence, and it's I suspect a little bit. Having been there myself and been reticent myself ten yeah. years ago, yeah. I think there is a there is a perceived loss of control. What of course you realise is that as you start to build trust, you get more control because mm-hmm. you're you've got equal control with the person. Anyway, that's a Absolutely. again another podcast. <laughs> um, okay, well that's that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I guess the one thing that we we try and ask people um, as we come to the end of a conversation is if you could challenge or ask or suggest to our listeners one thing they could do after listening to this podcast that would help Mm -hmm. them either improve their understanding or influence their organization, what would you ask them to do? Remain curious. Oh, I like that. And don't stop asking the difficult questions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all, I'm all for difficult questions. <laughs> I like that one. Okay, excellent. Sometimes we don't want to ask particular questions because uh, we worry about what other people will think. But in my experience, if you ask questions and you ask the right questions, people are quite happy to help you. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my favourites is always when uh, something niggles me at a time in a conversation, but I'm rushed. And then I'm sitting at home when I'm less rushed yeah. three hours later. And I think I should have asked. Yeah. And then I've learned now mm-hmm. to go and ask. 
like it, it's okay if it's a day later or two days later as long as you as long as you go and have that conversation right but it's where, what the worst bit is when yes. you say i should have asked and then you don't and then surprise surprise you should have asked because yeah, three months yeah, down the road you find out happens. you should it would have really yeah. helped you yeah but then there's also the flip side of that sometimes it's better not it's about choosing choosing your battles this, yeah. this is true this is our but this is our eternal fight as a human being isn't it right right well we have yes. uh spent a lovely 55 minutes or so chatting to you um thank you for sharing your time your story uh the work you do and and your uh knowledge uh, and I'm going to hand over to James to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I just had one question before we finish up, which is how can listeners find out more about your organization and what you guys did? So they can fire me an email at uh, inquiries at re-connected.co.uk. Or you can visit our website, which is www.re-connected.co.uk. And uh, there's more. Um, the the website is not uh, is 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 nowhere near in its finished format. So um, you know, there's new things that will be uploaded to that. Um, you know, over time. Um, so uh, remain curious. That's what I'll say. <laughs> remain curious. And, like. and are you on social media at all? And I am on social media. Oh, so we excellent. Re- reconnected sixteen on Twitter, I believe. So. Uh, well, um, we will. Um, when we when we release the episode, we'll make sure that we um, tweet you guys so that people can check out. Uh, how to get in touch if they want to perfect great stuff all right well thanks so much for your time julian no worries at all thank you james okay so here you are back with us i think we just had a really great conversation with julian there i think he brings a huge amount to this uh this topic and conversation a lot of really interesting insight as well yeah definitely i thought a really interesting place to start with social capital um and i think something that we all need to sort of reflect on a little bit more whether you call it social capital or anything else you know, the reflection of what have you inherited effectively without really realising it, what knowledge have you gained around how the society works and how yeah. you need to function to be accepted within it without... Yeah, do you know the rules? Yeah. Do you know how to play the game? Do you know how to play the game? Yeah, are you playing the same game I'm as not everyone even sure else? I know how to play I the game. I don't even know. Which, I mean... which suggests that you've got a lot less chance if you haven't been brought up yeah. in a household where they're playing, you know... Right, they're playing a different game, yeah. Or if they're actively participant in the workforce, yeah. which is tough. yeah. Pretty powerful. Any yeah. real takeaways for you from that one? Um, I think, aside from the fact I love is be curious. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great, that's isn't like it? my favourite thing. Um, I think probably for me, um, I, I was saying that I, I worked with someone at one point who I hadn't known, like I worked with five years before I found out that they had had the experience of the care system in the UK. And I guess for me, that's just, I, I need to remember that feeling of going, how did I not know? And we were, you know, we, we got on, right? It wasn't like I, I worked with them from a distance. So, yeah. yeah, I would I would say that's just something to take away and reflect on. You don't yeah. always know what's going on. Oh, good. Well, I had, um, I, I got a lot out of that conversation. I guess one of the things that I, I liked the most was around um, the, the description of trauma-informed practice that Julian brought. And, you know, speaking about trauma-informed practice as um, bringing together empowerment, safety, choice, and collaboration were the, were the things he called out. I thought that was a great little um, collection of things to think about. And like so many of the things that, that, that we touch on in this series, you know, the things that help trauma experienced individuals have a better existence help everybody have a better existence. And, and I, I just think that, you know, there's so much common sense in this. I guess a lot of the challenges that exist with the approaches discussed here and in other um, episodes recently we, we've touched on in I and D are, the, I guess, the, 
the, the need for individual attention and focus and and I guess that's to some extent costly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's that everything's costly. And every time that someone is different from what you've decided is going to be your core employee or customer yeah, or whatever, yeah. is it easy to manage. Or? It's harder. Yeah. And it's more work and it's more effort. And it's more money. Yeah. But we need to find the time to do this because we want, you know, people to have a positive experience at the workplace and they will be better employees and the organisation will be a happier place. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let us get out of here and say that we'll check back in another week's time. Bye. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.